Today we have the world's foremost Broadmoor researcher. And if you're not familiar with Broadmoor, it is a secure hospital for the criminally insane. A huge part of the Broadmoor story is the Jimmy Savile saga, whereby Savile was running the place at one point. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So many dark and diabolical characters were incarcerated in this mental facility, but even darker and more diabolical characters like Savile had access to them. So Boris is going to run down his research. He's got a book coming out called Broadmoor Sinister, and that's coming out on April the 2nd of 2022. Yes. And all of the links will be in the description box below the video for Boris and his book. This interview is kindly arranged by Christopher Berry D. So all of his links will also be below this video. He's a prolific true crime author and um, specializing in serial killers. And you, many of you have seen the videos we've done with him on the channel. I'll put the, the links to them down there as well. Huge thank you for coming on. Boris. No problem, Sean. Yeah. Pleased to be here. Pleased Bef- to be here. Before we get into Savile and all this other stuff, um, what got you interested in researching Broadmoor? Well, it's, it goes back um, to about 1977. I was nine years old and I had an extremely bad incident at Broadmoor Hospital and it just engaged me. It was in the newspapers the next day and it gripped me. And just as time gone on, you know, Monday morning here and the Broadmoor siren practice siren goes off. It just it, it just grips you. And the horror stories that come out of the hospital, you know, it's it's just something I've always been fascinated with. It's um it's taken it's taken me over, you know, in big time. Big Do you time. remember what those early horror stories were that were fascinating you? Yeah, it's um a guy called Robert Maudsley who was incarcerated in Broadmoor Hospital. Um it, an incident happened in 1978 where he committed a murder in London. Um, he was placed into the hospital. And on one incident in Baltimore Hospital, him and another guy called Cheeseman um, held another patient hostage um, for nine hours in one of the rooms that were in there. Um, for these nine hours, they tortured um, this other patient. Um, not just tortured him, I mean, they... they tied his hands up with flex that was available in the room um, they physically tortured him, they kicked his head like a football and the outcome was that um, Robert Maudsley had a plastic spoon which he formed into a sharp object and stabbed it into the side of the uh, uh, killing the guy um, pretty much instantly there was a rumour going around that what he actually done was he took the head off this guy and started eating the brains, which has since been found to not been true. It was just a plastic spoon, but that's the story that gripped me. That uh, reading it the next day in the papers when they, they gave him a nickname of Hannibal the Cannibal. Um, we're going back to 1977, before any film came out. You know, this is the original Hannibal the Cannibal. And that moniker stuck with him, you know, since, since today. And then there's other stories where... A friend of mine, his mum worked there. She was attacked. And you, you get all these stories build up and over the years and it just, it just, you just take it into the type of people that are actually inside the hospital. Fascinating. Wow. 
All right, so a huge part of your book, Broadmoor Sinister, is the Savile story. And you went and researched his entire family upbringing, did you? Yeah. Because yeah. he had a strange medical situation whereby his eyes wouldn't close, didn't he? Yeah. And, it's, and he was like the miracle child that he exists. You know, he didn't they, die. They say, I mean, yeah. what his brother, he had a brother called John and another brother called Vincent. And as they grew older, they tell him and they told the stories that he was a, a, a gifted child. This is why him and his mum, who we called the Duchess, were very close, Agnes. Um, it was about three month old that he actually, or four month old, that he was actually being pushed in the buggy and he, fell out the buggy, causing substantial injuries, which resulted in Savile being placed into a hospital for three months. They actually thought they were going to lose him. Um, and as time gone on, he, he was the sort of dream child of all the brothers and all the sisters. He, he was the one that they all sort of rallied around. You know, they, he was that type of special kid to them. And how do you think that played into his psychology then his feelings of you know invincibility and superiority do you think that anchors back to his miraculous survival of his illness i think it probably anchors back to if you've got that child that's that everyone rallies around it makes you feel special yeah so then you can start playing the game of pitting one off against the other that's just where i think that half the trouble you know if he wants something, if someone wasn't going to go give it to him, he'd ask somebody else. Um, he didn't pit his parents off against each other because he didn't have really much to do with his father. I mean, his father died in, I think it's 1955. He was an insurance salesman. He just went out to work and come back. It was his mother and his siblings. But they all, he paired them off against each other. What was it like for him growing up? Wasn't there a lot of, like mining activity in that region, and didn't he eventually yeah. become a miner? Yeah, he became what they're known as a Bevan boy, um, which means he couldn't fight in the Second World War, so he was um, conscripted down to the mines at an early age. Um, that didn't last very long because he actually had an ex- accident down in the mines. It, it was an explosion that um, rendered his back useless. Um, that didn't last very long at all. I mean, he, he claims to be... Um, you know, you probably see him at the cenotaph later in life, you know, with the Bevan boys and, and you know, on the um, Remembrance Sunday. But um, that was a very short period of his life. That wasn't something to be, you know, brag about extensively. I mean, you're literally a couple of months down the mine. So was that part of his uh, myth and his legend? You know, it came from such humble... Roots. Yeah, yeah, he, he used that quite a lot with people. I mean, he he played on the um, the downtrodden bit. You know, my mum's hard working. She had to bring up seven kids. Um, my father went out to work hard to support the family. Well, in fact, he was say an insurance broker, but he was also a bookmaker as well. So, of course, in them times, off street bookmakers wasn't the dumb thing. Um. He spent a lot of time with his brother Vincent and a lot of time with his brother John. Um, and Vincent was to become a key later in life. A killer? Help. No, a key to help. Oh, him. a key. <laughs> key. No, not a killer. Well, I don't know. He could have done. He could have done. Um, no, no, Vincent, it, he was um, after Savile sort of left the mining industry. 
um, recuperated. Um, what happened then was that uh, his brother Vincent got Jimmy into nightclubs, being a disc jockey. So that's how he got into nightclubs. Yeah. It was for his brother. Yeah. Right. His brother's a key to a lot of things. Not a lot of people know, but Vincent was a bit of a villain. Was he? Yes. He was well known in the underworld scene. He had money. Um, he had power. Um, which I think is what Jimmy Savile played on. What kind of rackets would his brother have been doing back then? Cigarette rackets, booze rackets. Um, the nightclub game would have been one of them as well because you can hide a lot behind the nightclub. I mean, it's Manchester. You're talking the 50s, early 50s. Um, up to the 60s. I mean, that's the time when, you know, you sell booze and fags and just after the war, everyone's in want. All right, so he gets this nightclub job then. Now, in uh, the Louis Thoreau program, he talks about a situation in a nightclub. Yeah. And he kind of reveals that he had some guy tied up in the basement, I think it was. Are you able to expand on that? I I am. I mean, I, I put it down to... Jimmy using his brother's Vincent's know-how because all Jimmy was in the club at the time was a DJ. He was spinning records. He was the first one to get people up dancing to records. He was, he was, and what made him popular was he, he drew the crowds in. Then just as that started, started, um, what his brother suggested was, you know, run nightclubs. So he got Jimmy into running three nightclubs in the Manchester area. Now, Jimmy said this is a bit of a power trip because his attitude was, you come into my club, you behave. You don't behave. You know, he was known to take him downstairs, he'd tie him up and they would get a good beating, you know. I mean, he played on the fear. I mean, his brother, Vincent, is the one that everyone was feared of. So Jimmy used it. You, you know, I mean, he used that to, to his advantage. He never let on in later life, I asked my brother, it was Vincent is the key to everything. And then what work was he doing at Leeds General Hospital? There was a guy called Franey, who was a good friend of Jimmy Savile's, who was in charge of Leeds General Hospital. And what Franey done was um, Jimmy, you know, got involved with Franey and and. and what eventually happened was that he, he made his way to Leeds Hospital, put himself forward for volunteering as a porter. Now, the first early recorded case that Savile was involved in was in 1955, just before he went to Leeds General Hospital. So he's in the um, Leeds General, he's put himself forward for his porter's role. He's then not only doing the porter's role, he's doing the radio at the hospital as well. So he, he's getting himself well-known in two different areas there. He's making himself out to be something. You know, he, he's trying, he's, he's spreading the word. but And then it becomes tricky. You, you know what I mean? This is where in 1957 they say that some of the Leeds General Hospital stuff started, where mortuaries were visited. Did he have access to corpses at this point? Yeah, yeah. It was known to have access to corpses. It is known that he had um, necrophilia. You know what I mean? It's, he did double on that. So, so the allegations of the necrophilia going back to the Leeds General Hospital yeah. period. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's not just Leeds. There are many other hospitals at a later date, but Leeds General seems to be the one. Him and Franey had a very good partnership, um, which will come to light later on. But um, Franey is another influence in his life. What do you think made him have this fetish for corpses? I'm no expert. Yeah. I could not tell you that. I mean, it's... Um, is it a power trip? You know, somebody's dead there on a slab. You, you know, I mean, it's. I don't know if Christopher could describe it. If you, you know, if someone was, I'm here, you're not. I'm gonna take. You know, I mean, it's. I can't understand what made him go through that um, phase of life. For to me, to the day I die, I wouldn't be able to work it out. It's beyond people's comprehension, isn't it? Because it's yeah. so bizarre. So how did he get his lucky break then? His lucky break came in the 60s. There was a radio station called Radio Luxembourg, which probably a lot of people would have heard of. He was picked up um, for Radio Luxembourg, um, and that's where he got his lucky break. Um, He had hundreds of thousands of listeners all over Europe, um, very popular radio slots in the evening. Um... And that took him for a number of years, and he was that. Then it eventually the BBC got wind, um, and that's how he got the Radio One job. He, you know, he 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 spent many years at Luxembourg, BBC. You know, they they was uh, that they pulled him in. Did his track record of deviant behaviour? Were the BBC aware of allegations against him in the early part of his life? And did they just override that because they saw him as this massive profit potential? No, I mean, at, at first, no one knew. I mean, he was arrested in about 1955 on uh, suspected two cases of um, sexual abuse to two young ladies. Um that was, um, he was arrested, he was questioned, and the police put down no further action. Um, that wasn't disclosed. And his brother, Vincent, I believe, had something to do with him getting off of that particular charge. But the BBC didn't have no wind of it, no wind at all. I mean, nobody, I mean, even to the day he died, you know, people from the outside never, never knew. Did you hear anything about the sexual abuse of a boy in Cheshire in the early period of his life? Yeah. Do you, do you have any details about that? Um, not too many on those. I mean, I'm going to be really honest with you. Um, yet again, he pulled the ball over people's eyes on that one. You know, he got away with it. He, it was said there was money involved somewhere along the line. Um, I believe that could be the case. But then again, I believe that could be down to his brother pulling strings. What role did his weekly luncheon for the police play in him being able to get away with more and more things? Power. I mean, with with the police, you you have got a situation where they are got, got to be 100% that they are going to get a conviction with this guy whether it's the CPS or the police, they've got to be 100%. Because if he goes to court and he's found not guilty, the people that's brought the charges are going to look stupid. Their careers are going to go down the pan. 
But this guy's got power and money. He's a money-making machine. He's Jimmy Savile. He is the person you hear on the radio. It can't be Jimmy. He's too innocent. You know what I mean? It's the same as Rolf Harris. It couldn't be him. He's too innocent. It, he pulled the wall over the police's eyes. He pulled the wall over politicians' eyes. Big time. I mean, you, you're talking from 1950 to... two. Uh, sorry, 1950, say, to 1998. Jimmy Savile was a sexual predator. And no one picked up on it. What about the allegations that the police who attended his lunches, Jimmy Savile had access to so many teenage girls who were like kind of like groupie uh, category back then that he was supplying these girls to the cops who were attending his lunches? Okay, we're, we've... Like they disappear into rooms in his house with these girls. Yeah, and, I mean, if you read up, I mean, Jimmy Savile had a few nephews and nieces, and uh, one of his nephews um, turned up at Jimmy's house one day, and it was noted by him that there was other young boys and girls there of a minor age, and there were people in high-power places that were actually there at the time. Um... He managed somehow to be ushered out and he has said on camera that he knew back in the 50s and 60s that he was a sexual predator. He was grooming young girls and boys far back then. With the police, it's the same as the... Um, uh, excuse me, the, the woman who was in the 80s who had the, the whorehouse. Um, in America? No, it was, in the, it was over here. She, yeah. Actually, there's a film about a personal services <coughs> was the name of the film. And she had the police and everyone in their backhand because the police were at it as well. So you don't know if there were officers there that were at it, obviously because he was supplying money talks. Jimmy's big. There's power. We can gain access to anything we want. It could be drugs. It, it just snowballs. It snowballs. Is Doncroft Schoolgirl still open, James? Or is that closed? Closed. Is it? In Staines. So for the people watching that then, Doncroft uh, Schoolgirls was, uh, uh, it was in Surrey, in this county, wasn't it? And what, what kind of girls ended up there and what happened to the runaways? The type of girls that ended up there will be the ones that ended up in court with orders, you know, we're taking away from your parents, you're not going to school, you know, bunking, you're, you're shoplifting, you're doing whatever. So this was, what I would say is the equivalent of a male-approved school. They were placed there for a reason, um, for education. Um, Jimmy and his brother, John, um, claimed that girls were sending Jimmy letters Fan letters. This is seems to be some sort of rules that he used. So he wrote to the headmistress at the time, said to her, Look, I'm getting letters from girls. Would you like me to come and visit? That was his in. Then he's in the situation now of he's got a sweet shop to play in. This is, I'll put it bluntly, this is what, you know, it is to Jimmy. It's a sweet shop. I've got all this to play with. It wasn't until later. Around about 2011, that the two of them actually come forward 
and claimed that he raped them. His brother did as well. So there was about seven or eight cases. But at the time, it was brushed under the carpet because you bear in mind, you've got someone at an approved school that's gone out and committed theft. Then you've got Jimmy, who's a public figure, spins records for a living, he's on telly. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe someone is in the wrong? Or are you going to believe Jimmy, who's, who's buttered up to be some kind of demigod? And apparently, if a complaint came in about him across the country, it was reported to his home jurisdiction. Yeah. And there was one cop in charge of receiving those incoming complaints. And that was a cop that attended his weekly lunches. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you couldn't, you could not make this up. I mean, it, it, Jimmy, uh, it, from the start, he had everyone eating out of his hand. He was literally, I probably guarantee you, Sean, that if he was sitting in front of you, you could be taken in by him. You know, you, you were talking about a man that was knighted by the Pope, that had a uh, KGB. Um, he hadn't even had the status of being a, an honorary admiral for the navy. He had a green beret from the Royal Marines. This is the extent of this guy um, put himself out there. You're not going to argue with someone who's who's that way. You know what I mean? And there was it's money talks. I mean, I do believe that it was money that talked with that that police officer because you got to bear in mind, never took the times backhanders. We've all seen the TV programs. We all know the stories about the backhanders to. People in the in the Met Police, Savvy Police, sorry, in a Amsterdam, you know, you name it, it's backhanders. So it was that culture at the time. It's money. And he was friends with Thatcher. He was friends with Prince Charles, and on and on it went, didn't it? <laughs> so, what was the relationship between Savile and the Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe? Okay. Now, this is a probably a bit of a long-winded story, but I'm going to start. Please take your time. We've got yeah. all the time. In Savile the world. lived in Leeds in a. Round Hay Park um, in Leeds. He lived in a flat, which is about four or five stories up. Um, quite sparse to, you know, for someone who's got that much money. It overlooked Round Hay Park. There were two um, Yorkshire Ripper murders in Round Hay Park, a matter of 150 yards from Savile's flat. Now, some would say that Savile had a relationship with Peter Sutcliffe, well before Sutcliffe was arrested. Um, it might come, not come to, it's not, it doesn't surprise me. Savile could be out eating lunch. You know, you've got to imagine Peter Sutcliffe could be in the same area. Savile was arrested on suspicion of one of these murders. Um, they take dental records. Nothing's more said. Done and dusted. Wow. Then, I think it was about 1981 that Sutcliffe was arrested. And about 82, I think, or 83, he was placed into Broadmoor. And at the time, Savile was quite prolific in Broadmoor. He was quite well-known. He don't keys. He's come and goes. He pleases. Um, raises allegedly hundreds of thousands of pounds of Broadmoor. But that's... He strikes up a relationship with Peter Sutcliffe. And it's a very close relationship. These two get on like a house on fire. Not only do they get on like a house on fire, Savile 
being the person he is, decides we're going to use this as a photo opportunity. Draws in Frank Bruno. So you've got a picture of Savile with his smoke rim glasses, his customary cigar in the background of his shell suit, shaking hands in the foreground. You have Frank Bruno and the Yorkshire Ripper shaking hands. He had this type of power in the hospital. He drew in Prince Charles to raise funds. He drew in Princess Diana. He also drew in some of his sexual predator mates into the hospital as well. Rolf Harris had visited, guided tour with Jimmy Savile. Max Clifford guided tour with Jimmy Savile. But what sticks in the throat of people is the relationship between him and the Yorkshire Ripper. I have many a times received messages from ex-patients at Bournemouth, ex-staff at Bournemouth, who I'm still in touch with. They tell me the stories about he'd be walking around with Savile. They were sitting having a cup of tea. Savile would tell me bring in stuff for Peter Sutcliffe. It's horrific to think that, that Savile had that much power. Everyone suspected what was going on, this relationship, but nobody pulled him up on it. Mind-blowing. What access to corpses did he have around this period of time? And what do you suspect he got up to with those corpses? I've got to put it bluntly. I mean, if you've got the keys to a hospital, um, Broadmoor's got a mortuary uh, for the obvious reasons because your patient is probably going to die through the night or there's going to be a suicide or a patient's going to kill a patient, which has happened throughout the past. So you're going you're to have these mortuaries. Savile had total run of Broadmoor Hospital. He had a house on the, um, just outside the walls. He had his own caravan inside the walls. He could come and go as he pleased. What went on in those mortuaries, I probably can only leave to the imagination of people that read horror stories. But then you've got Leeds General, Papworth Hospital, Stoke Mandeville Hospital, where he had his own room, and he called it the Kennel. He had the run of the whole hospital. Oh, it's Jimmy. You know what I mean? Oh, where's he? oh, don't worry about it. It's Jimmy. Just let him get on with it. So you can only imagine what horrors went on in the mortuaries. That it's frightening. It's one thing to assume that he conned Prince Charles into helping him and Princess Diane to helping him, and on and on it goes. But why on earth would the royal family bring Jimmy Savile in as a marriage guidance counsellor for Prince Star- Princess Diane Charles? Wouldn't you have to have security clearance and trust at the highest level? You know as well as I do, Sean, I've worked in some secure places and my background is Chet Foley. And I mean Chet Foley, my mum and dad, your nan and granddad. It goes back years upon years and they will pull you to bits left, right and centre. Now, the horrific thing for me is is that Jimmy Savile had his own room in Clarence House. 
Now, Prince Charles and Lady Diana trusted him, as well as um, the Queen, as well as um, the other known Andrew, who's uh, currently under investigation. But he had his own flat. And the power that he had was he could sack Prince Charles and Lady Diana's staff, which he has done. They trusted him to the extent that they could sit down and have a conversation about their marriage. He was seen as, by them as well, a demigod. No, Jimmy can't do no wrong. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's horrific to think that that man was round the children or round the future king. You know what I mean? There's, there's no story there that suggests anything went on, but if given a chance. Do you think that there's a degree of looking the other way? Because if Prince Charles's mentor was Lord Mountbatten, yeah, yeah, who had a history yeah. of yeah. that activity, do you think there's like an acceptability factor whereby it's it's not that a big deal to them I mean if they've done the background checks on him and they've discovered this stuff I'm going to say in, in them days I mean what you what we've got to understand is we're living in an age now where nothing is acceptable okay and it should never have been acceptable anyway but you're going back to a time in the 70s when you know somebody on top of the pots will touch somebody's leg or backside or whatever Does, have you seen the clip of Savile doing that I've seen you? it many a times many a times I've seen, you see him on Jim Will Fix It when he's got his arms around the girls and you can see where the hands are going. And, but it, it, you're talking about the 70s, 60s, when women were treated slightly different to what they are now. They weren't expected, you know, they were expected to keep quiet. Um, not just Savile, you're talking about, as you rightly say, Lord Mountbatten. There's history in a, fam a royal family of certain things going on. You could go back to Jack the Ripper. You know, was a part of the royal family involved in that? There's a lot of secrets there hidden that we'll never know about. Thatcher. You know, they all... Whether, they, whether Prince Charles knew what was going on, I don't know. I can't answer that. And I can't answer whether Princess Diana knew. You know what I mean? They just see a mask. And what was hidden behind the mask was was quite horrific. So there are allegations of Kerhome kids getting pimped out from that era. Yeah. Do you have any information about Savile being a participant in that? Savile Savile was what I would call the kingpin. He was the person that would be sitting at the top and and A wanted a boy, so let's go to Savile. He can supply um, a boy of whatever age or a girl of whatever age. And it was known, and it is known, um, that Savile uh, pimped out youngsters. Um, it, he, um, I mean, what you've got to take into account as well is if you're a young lad or a young girl and you see Jimmy Savile, oh, he's famous, here's my route to fame. Okay, they could promise you the world and all the rest of it, and all of a sudden they're, they're around the back butt raping you, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, he, he was prolific. So David Ike, many years ago, said that Savile 
got away with his crimes and had access to such powerful yeah. people and royal people because he was a procurer. So that, that ties into exactly what you yeah. just said. You, yeah. you think that David Icke was correct in that? Yeah, I think David, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'll be honest, I'm saying I'm not a lover of David Icke. Some things he says are right, some things I pretend to dis- disagree with, but this time he's spot on. He's absolutely spot on. I mean, you've got to take the, um, I don't know if you remember an interview years ago with um, John Lydon. Oh, Johnny Rotten. Yeah, Johnny Rotten. He, he gave an interview. Didn't matter about 1978. He was banned from the BBC because he outed Jimmy Savile. They won't put him on top of the pops. Exactly. Now, if Johnny Rotten knows, I mean, he's an intelligent man. I mean, don't get me wrong. But if Johnny Rotten knows and spilling the beans, you know, if David Icke's spilling the beans, that tells you something. You know, it's, it's, there's a major cover-ups going from the royal family right the way down to the CPS. They hide it. What do you think of his Louis Thoreau appearance? And you earlier on you said that if Savile was here now, he would charm us. Yeah. Do you think that is a case of what happened with Louis yes. and Louis was blindsided? Yes. Yeah, Louis admitted that he was actually taken in. It's a shame, really, because, I mean, you see some of Louis' stuff and, and it's fantastic stuff he does. I mean, I sat and watched that when it first came out and didn't have an inkling, like everyone. And then in 2000, I think 2012 or 2011, when it first came out, I mean, Louis spent, I think, a week with Jimmy and he's flat in round hay. He travelled around with him on two occasions on that programme, nearly, Savile nearly got caught out. You know, when they were driving in the car and, and they're talking about paedophilia and Jimmy says, I'll let people think what they want. Now, either I, either I am or I'm not. And it was a, it was a big clue then. But it's, he was definitely blindsided. I mean, I feel sorry for the guy for... But, you know... In a second, but he put another program out and said that he was blinded. What happened on the BBC? This is your life, nineteen ninety-eight. Well, he had two appearances. The first one was with Eamon Andrews. Um, not much came of that. But in nineteen ninety-eight, he's uh, what happened was there was one mention of I think it was Michael Ashport at the time. Um, you know, with the red book, Terman has said. Oh, but all the little girls, Jimmy, and all the rest of it. And you can see Jimmy's face going, well, no, we'll forget that bit, forget that bit. And you look back on it, we all use hindsight. But if you look at that closely, the clue's there. Well, it weren't until the end of 98 that he was thrown out of the BBC. So he's had this is a life on the BBC. And then he's been thrown out the same year. So how complicit were the BBC in enabling him? Right, I'm, I'm going to be totally honest here. I've got stacks of notes, which I'm, I'm always making notes when I'm indoors. You know, I've got my purple pen out and I'm forever writing. And it was in 1999 that a guy called Sir Roger Jones decided that Jimmy Savile shall not have entrance to the BBC ever again. He was questioned on um, 
a program by Mark Williams Thomas, the ex-detective. Yeah, we've got him on this documentary. Yeah. Um, and Mark Williams Thomas asked him the question, did you know at the time? He didn't give a straight answer. But for him to turn around and in 1999 turn around and say, no, we don't want Savile in here, that tells you something straight away. Then we go back to children in need. The reason I bring up children in need is because someone in the BBC wanted Savile on children in need. And the hierarchy at the BBC said, no, we can't have them in charge of children in need. Never gave a reason. You know, turned around and said, no, we just can't have him. Esther Anson said, and she quoted on a couple of occasions, in a funny way, we colluded with him. Now, when you have Mark Williams, Thomas on, on, he will tell you that. What's a funny way about we colluded him? Why would you turn around and say in a funny way, you know, it sounds like you did collude with him, you knew what was going on. A couple of years later, she's starting up Childline. She said it's very painful and distressing. For who? For the people that are involved or because you knew what was going on. We've made him into the Jimmy Savile who was untouchable. Now, there's three quotes there that Esther's come out with that tell me that she knew what was going on. Her husband, Desmond Wilcox, who was a filmmaker at the time, uh, but was also in charge of the BBC, her husband. The clues are there. In a funny sort of way, we colluded with him. If I said to you, in a funny sort of way, I colluded with you, you go, it makes you sort of, like Christopher said, you, you could be, you feel as though you're involved. What was Edwina Curry's role in all this? Oh, funny story. Me and Christopher had a chat on the way up in the car, and he met Edwina Curry on a couple of occasions and turned around and told me a few stories about her. Um, quite aloof. I won't use the words, but anyway, Edwina Curry was in charge of um, Department of Health because, bear in mind, Broadmoor did not have, uh, didn't come apart part of the NHS until 2002. It was under the Department of Health. Edwina Curry, in, uh, in those years, had encouraged um, the people at Bournemouth that Savile should be in charge. This is a lady who's running, helped run in the country, and she's now put a lunatic inside of, in charge of an asylum. He's got a set of gold keys he comes and goes and says, please. He has a massive palatial caravan in the grounds. He gets his gold-plated um, Rolls-Royce service by the mechanics there. Not just that, his Hustler mobile home, it's called the Hustler, serviced at Broadmoor, all under the noses of everyone. And Edwina Curry, blindsided, as well as Thatcher, blindsided by this utter loon and psychopath to run a psychiatric hospital. It's, it's 
you could say is, you know, it's another one of his sweet shops. Are we enjoying the podcast? It's a word from our sponsor, Shady Rays. Gear up for the season ahead with quality shades built to last. Our friends at Shady Rays have you covered with premium polarised shades and quick swap snow goggles that won't break the bank. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers an unrivaled product that's just as good as any expensive pair we've worn, aren't they, Gem? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Durable frames and world-class optics for all outdoor adventures. And if you're into winter sports, the quick swap snow lenses move effortlessly between full sun to low light environments that's not all shady rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost or broken replacements if you lose or break your pair even on day one they told us they will send you a brand new pair no questions asked were your shady rays with confidence because they have your back long after you purchase if you don't love your shady rays, <laughs> exchange for a new pair or return them for free in 30 days. There's no risk when you shop. The team always has your back with personal and fast support. Exclusively for our listeners, Shady Rays is giving you an amazing deal for the season. Go to shadyrays.com and use the code Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off two plus pairs of polarized sunglasses Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over a quarter million people. Go to shadyrays.com and use code Sean, S-H-A-U-N, for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you're watching on YouTube, link is in the description box. Thanks for supporting our sponsor, Shady Rays. Because that's the impression I get. Savile only use these as, as sweet shops, and you've got to remember, they hop from Broadmoor, then they pop up to Patworth, then they go over to Stoke Mandeville. Then they go down to Bristol. They pop up to Liverpool or Manchester. There's 40 hospitals that this man had been known to tour around and have his way. Well, I've got one more question on your list and then I think James has got some questions for you. But I'll go. I'll give you this question first. Um, how, how many missed chances to prosecute him were there over his 50-year reign of abuse? Well, if we start back in the 50s, there was two missed there straight away. Then you're talking the 60s, there was four missed there, four missed chances. Police. There was missed chances at Duncroft School originally. There was one 14-year-old at Broadmoor that went squealing, or squealing rightfully so, to the warders and nurses that was told to, as Jimmy Savile, forget about it. There were eight cases at Broadmoor in total. There were 40 hospitals that this guy managed to get into from children's hospitals. There are numerous, numerous accounts of how he could have been caught. And to top it off, his his own, his own barrister turned around and said to uh, the Mirror newspaper, well, we know he did it. That is his own barrister that was going to defend him in one case because the mirror outed him a long time before he died and they were told to drop it because it's Jimmy Savile, you won't get it, you know. And his own barrister turned around and said, 
We can't touch him. We know he did it, but we can't touch him. It's power. It's money. You're talking about the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher at the time. She sent him a letter buttering him up, giving him the biggest ass kissing he's ever had. Pope John Paul II. A papal knighthood. Recommended by Basil Hume. You then have... I'm going to bring up Keir Starmer because round about 98 he was in charge of the CPS. It could have been round about, it might have been a bit later. He even apologised after Savile died and said, I'm sorry we didn't take the chance. Now the only reason he didn't take the chance is because if it went to court and he was found not guilty, Starmer's arse is kicked, he's out of a job. He don't get his knighthood. But he gets his knighthood for failure. Like everyone else has got that knighthood, people get knighthood and rewarded for failure. The people at Broadmoor have got rewarded for failure. They've been put in some high, high jobs. If I fail, I get me arse kicked. If you fail, Sean, you get a big kicking over it. The same as everyone else in this room. If we fail or balled up, but if you're in power and you've got money, you will get the biggest arse lick from the establishment that you've ever got. So we've seen a parallel with this celebrity association then whereby Epstein had pictures of like himself with the Clintons plastered all over the place. And Savile had pictures of him with Elvis Presley, the Beatles. Yeah, These pictures were duplicated and... And um, yep. put throughout various of his locations. Barbara Bush, that was another one. She had um, time with him. So the purpose of these pictures is what? Well, ego. It is purely for ego. I don't know if you ever watched years and years ago. You had the only fools and horses Miami twice, and they're sitting in this in this villa. And he looks round and he sees his doppelganger with pictures of um, the Pope, um, Madonna, blah, blah, blah. Ego trip. And do you think these pictures were used to dazzle um, potential victims? Yeah, because, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, if you're young, you're vulnerable, okay? If if you're a 14-year-old girl or 16-year-old girl going to the top of the pops, and you're standing next to the white-haired um, uh, face of the BBC, who, who's who's probably you know been and done done it all, and you're thinking, hey, if I get in with him, you know, I mean, he's going to make me a star, you know, I'm, I'm going to end up making a lot of money, and in reality, you're going to end up making sod all because all this guy wants you for is a quick fling and a fiddle, get you out of the door. And if you say anything, I'm going to ruin your life. He said he's going to ruin your... I mean, the amount of times he said it to people, I'm going to ruin your life. If I will make you famous. But he didn't mean famous as in, I'm going to put you on telly. I'll make you famous as in, you ruin me, I'll ruin you. He'd done that to everyone. He had, he had a book with telephone numbers like Tony Blair's in there. Donald... Um, whatever his name is, I'll come back to him, isn't it? You're talking Prince Charles, then you're talking, it was Lady Diana, then you're talking all these little cronies like Rolf Harris, 
Max Clifford. You know, he could walk about with a nominee. He could get on a train and people would just wave at him and leave him. But they weren't good enough for him. What about the case of the teenager who he got pregnant? Yeah, there there is a an alleged rumour. I'm saying alleged rumour. There is a rumour going around that he actually fathered a child. Um, but um, the young girl that uh, had the child didn't want to know. Um, it's been kept quiet. It's been hushed. I put it down to money. So there was an abortion there then? I'm... There, there are rumours that he has a child about. Oh, there's that as well. Yeah, okay. there, there is a rumour that he has a child about. I mean, he would pay pay money to keep people quiet, but there, there is a rumour. I mean, I don't go much on it. I mean, it's, it either is or it isn't. It's not. What have you got, James? Uh, yeah, so a couple of questions. Have you come across the Claire McAlpine case with the BBC? 1971, there was a girl who uh, wrote a diary. She was a dancer on top of the pops. And so that something to do with Pan's people or something, was it? Well, she, she wrote a diary and she, she had been going out with um, a world-famous singer. And she ended up... Her mum found the diary and then she went to the BBC to complain. Big fuss was picked up, got in the papers... The girl committed suicide. Yeah, that um, came up later with Tony Blackburn being sacked by the BBC. Yeah, there there was. Um, I mean, strangely enough, I was watching the other night. Um, this is a life, and Tony Blackburn came on, and I'm all thinking to myself, you, you know, he knew, and he kept quiet. The young lady um, that committed suicide. I mean, it's. It's the diary that was actually contained quite a lot of abuse in it. As far as I was aware, what I've heard, I've not actually read bits or anything like that. Um, a lot of it was brushed under the carpet. A lot of it. And nothing, I mean, it wasn't until 1999 that the BBC turned and said Savile needs to go. You, you know what I mean? That, that you've got to remember in 71, he's a darling of the BBC. He's he can't do no wrong. So the, there's lots of um, inquiries after the exposure program yeah. of Jimmy Savile. So the hospitals, the BBC, the police, everyone had these inquiries. Do you think they were just a waste of time yeah. and money? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. When you look at these inquiries, and I've seen a 148-page report on Broadmoor, and the first 10 pages is, this is Appendix A, Appendix B, it's like 10 pages of nothing. And then it gets down to the last 10 pages of, well, at the time, um, we were lived in a different era. We could get away with touching someone up the backside. They actually turned around and basically said, well, it's acceptable. No one's ever been brought to account for it. We just write a report and just brush it under the carpet. I mean, me and Christopher, well, Christopher, has put in FOI reports to Broadmoor Hospital. On every occasion, they've fobbed us off. 
you know, they've come back and said, oh, uh, NHS or the NHS. Well, what do you mean? You're all NHS. No, no, we're two different. We're the NHS or NHS. So all they do is they, the reports do nothing. You know, you know, I'm, I'm, if I can find a report that's going to turn around and tell me, like, but there's 40 hospitals that he went round. Each hospital has got a 100-odd page report. The BBC, funded by the likes of me, you, you, and you, have just, yeah, we'll just do a report, keep them sweet, and hide it, because that's all we do. Government's the same, they've, they've hide it, they won't come forward and turn around and declare they made a mistake. Broadmoor won't come declare they made a mistake. BBC will definitely not, but they will expect you to pay their money. You think he was an absolutely unique character and will we ever see his life again? Well, you, you mentioned Epstein and a few others that sort of come to mind for me, but it, I don't think anyone will ever touch what the crime and the, the sheer want of, of rape or whatever you want to call it. I don't think anyone will ever or should be able to you know be allowed to get away with that I mean it's, we're in an age now where you, you know if I touch someone you touch someone he gets banged out straight away and that's the way it should be you know it's just um, the BBC used a massive brush and a big bit of carpet the NHS now use the big brush and a big bit of carpet because they just want it out of the way. <coughs> I mean, I, I actually said coming up here, and I've met a lot of psychopaths in my time. In America, you've got to remember this is just America with Epstein. In America, the age for consent is a lot later than in the UK. A lot earlier, later in the UK. So Epstein was, despite the filthy man he was, he he was he was interfering with girls or playing with girls in this country that would have been the legal age. He doesn't hold a candle to what this man's done, this this savile. And I said to him, I, I had to walk out of this now because I couldn't take any more of what he was telling me. That's how bad it was. I mean, I got outside and I felt ill. And what what it is is, I said to him, "This man is the worst sexual psychopath this world's ever known." I think perhaps would um, at the end of the podcast, maybe if you could sit there and say that to the camera, we could put you, you know, in. I've never ever ever felt the way he put that across, his tone of voice, his grasp of his subject. Me, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're all totally gripped um, by what you're saying, Boris. Is there anything else that I've missed out that you'd like to say? Oh, oh Sean, I could probably sit here and talk about um, his PA, who knew, Miss Cope, who spent 30 years with him and claimed that she knew nothing. Mark Williams Thomas interviewed her and that claim don't wash for me because you don't spend 30 years with someone and not know what's going on, especially if you're a PA. 
And then she says, oh, I didn't know where he was from day to day. Well, if I've got a PA, I'd like my PA to turn and say to me, oh, you're here tomorrow, you're doing that, or I know where you are. <coughs> Not her. She literally brushed over it. Janet Cope was her name. I mean, the fact that, you know, the phone book that had so many names and connections in it. You know, she, the, the book's there. It's been seen. It's it's horrific to think that fifty odd years that this man had free reign of the government, the NHS, the BBC, who were respected in nineteen forty because they were the voice of the British people and well respected by the people that he managed to walk into every walk of life and destroy thousands of people. Life is beyond me. I I could probably sit and talk for hours about this man and, you know, my specialist subjects are broad more uh, and that's... But this guy writing a chapter about Savile has just opened up probably the biggest can of worms that I've come across. Well, we appreciate you coming in and sharing your information. So please support what Boris is doing. His book, Broadmoor Sinister, is coming out April 2nd, 2022. And if people want to follow you on socials or contact you, what links can we provide? We have um, broadmoorsinister.com. We have Broadmoor Sinister Facebook page. and we have a Twitter account, Broadmoor Sinister, Instagram, um, email addresses are all on my website. And there's a link to Christopher Berry D's website, which I am totally grateful for because this, this guy without him, I wouldn't be able to function because he's just given me an inspiration. And we are grateful to Christopher also for arranging this interview and his links will be in the description box. And um, you can also check out the other work we've done with him on the True Crime Podcast. So please let us know in the comments what you thought about today's interview. Huge thank you to the new subscribers. Subscription logo's in the corner of the screen. And huge thank you to Boris for coming in today. Thank you, Sean. We're doing one of them. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Well done. So I'm here with Christopher Berry D, one of the most prolific and best-selling true crime authors in the world. He's going to today tell us a little bit about Jimmy Savile. So what are your thoughts on Savile's 50-year reign of sexual predation with the complicity of the BBC? I think Boris, in his incredible interview with you, nailed it in one. We're the taxpayers. We're the license payers. And for years, we've been conned and snowed by the BBC. We have sexual cover-ups from top to bottom. And everything that Boris said in his interview made me feel so sick that I had to go out of this interview and have a cigarette to calm down. 
Now, I've interviewed over 30 of the worst serial killers in the world. The very worst. Cannibals, necrophiliacs, the worst in prisons around the world. And when we know that Jimmy Savile was going into the mortuaries and hospitals, shutting the door, dimming the lights, pulling a corpse out of a cupboard, laying it on a slab and having sex with it. You're in the realms of Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, Douglas Clark, the Sunset Slower I've interviewed, who wanted to open up a mortuary and have sex with the dead with a girl that was at one time dating Kenneth Bianchi, the Hillside Strangler. You've got Dennis Nilsson, the London gay guy that was killing and having sex with dead bodies. If you had a Stephen King horror movie, even he could not imagine this long, blonde-haired man gloating, his eyes coming out on stalks, smoking a big, fat cigar, sidling into a mortuary and playing with dead children. How disgusting is that? And the BBC knew about it and they condoned it. And not one person, Sean, has been held responsible. In fact, they've been promoted. They're given pensions. The BBC needs to get its ass into gear. Who was more diabolical, Savile or Epstein? The difference between Savile and Epstein is in America, the age of consent is a lot lower than it is in the UK. A disgusting man, of course, but look at the publicity that surrounded him and and uh, this woman, Ghislaine Maxwell. It's all over the news every day. There's court hearings. Everybody's going crazy about God's grace to you for allowing him on is something which the public ought to be absolutely furious about. What Freedom of Information Acts have you tried to utilise to get information on Savile and Broadmoor? Well, we already knew the answers, Boris and I. But I thought, well, let's give Broadmoor or the NHS a fair crack at the whip. We, we knew what the answers were. So I sent Broadmoor a FOI request. Now, by law, they should have responded to say they got it within 12 days, at maximum. Got about a month or so to come back and say, we can either help you or we can't help you or there will be a fee. This is the FOI cross. This is, this is British government law, not a peep. I ra redid it again after two months. Nothing. I rang the hospital. Nobody would answer. And eventually I got hold of a security guard who gave me a telephone number. Yes, sir, I think I've got somebody for you. I spoke to this woman. 
She said, I'll pass that on to our legal advisors. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you very much for contact. We'll do everything we can to help you. Nothing. Eventually, I, on my third FOI request, I, I actually sent a copy to uh, Matt Hancock, um, the health secretary, because this is this was this this refusal to answer these things. It is under his watch. Nothing. But the next day, the NHS attorneys emailed me. Oh well, we're not part of the NHS as such. That hospital, we are. It is the NHS, and we uh, we are NHS. And then I wrote back and said, well, that's legal bullshit because, you know, are you telling me that Broadmoor Hospital is not a public institution and they're not responsible for the freedom of information? And I come back with another little bullshit. And we already knew the answers. <laughs> so you see the cover-up constantly covering up. How rare are necrophiliacs and what would have shaped Savile into that kind of behavior? Would he be, be born with something wrong with his brain or would it have been factors that happened throughout his life? I think Boris summed it all up uh, in a very matter-of-fact sort of way. He's not a professor. He's, he, you know, he's a, a Londoner uh, and he, he said it as it is. And uh, with uh, necrophilia, uh, basically... A, a especially a paedophile uh he's got a young child or a a woman a young woman or a man in case of dharma is helpless it's completely under and now we've got to remember that uh savile was a control freak he was an extreme narcissist he was a control he's a sexual predator and so if he thought a young girl's laying on a mortuary slab or was a woman on a mortuary slab, it's like, again, as Boris said, a sweet shop. The mortuaries became sweet shops for him. Do you think that the royals should have done more, uh, exercised more scrutiny of his background rather than allow him to access the highest level of the circles? I can tell you this, that if you try to get into a Category A prison today, you will have the most stringent security checks done, and then you still might not get in. You're telling me that Prince Charles, with the MI5 and MI6 in his own security staff and own security team, and you've got Princess Di and she's got her entourage and you've got the Queen and all this mixing about, and not one single one of them had the brains and the wits to think, let's do an in-depth security check on Mr. Savile before we let him in here, or let alone him with a hundred yards of this royal family. But no, they didn't. And that comes back to Mount Batten, and, and it's it's almost as if it's like, oh, well, don't worry about it. No big deal to them. What have you got, James? I just had those three questions from earlier. Maybe like something about um, have, have we learnt anything? Do you think society's moved on and learnt something from Savile and there has been some sort of change in society to stop someone like Savile happening again? 
the question asked is really, um, have we learned anything from Savile and are we doing better today? I think is, is a good, a, a good question. When the NHS refuse to answer these sort of questions, which are quite honest, sensible questions, why are they covering up now? What's going on behind Broadmoor's walls now that we do not know about? What is held in secret these days? Who's at the BBC now or any other institution that hasn't been outed? So perhaps we've got a long way to go. Anything you'd like to say in conclusion that you think that's been missed out? Where's the gin and tonic? <laughs> <laughs> you come here in good faith. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Thanks. Brilliant.